Transink isn't listening when passengers say they don't want to stand out in the rain and miss two and three and four full buses. They want to see the drivers treated fairly. So at the end of the day, we have to focus on the unaccountable executives who are doing this. And again, we've tried everything we can to avoid disruption on the passengers. But like any labor dispute, at the end of the day, the power that the workers have is the power ultimately to withdraw their labor. This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. All right, welcome to another podcast. That's Gavin McGarrigal. He's the union leader for Metro Vancouver transit workers that are staging job action. And Rob, here we go with an escalation of this transit strike in Metro Vancouver. You could see this one coming. So now the union is saying they're going to shut the whole bus system down for three days next week to send a message to TransLink. They're not happy. They haven't got a deal here. I think this puts pressure on the John Horgan government here. Yeah, this went from a kind of headache file, I think, for the Horgan government to a full-out kind of crisis because, as the Premier has said in the past, he is not going to allow a transit disruption to carry on for many months, as he blamed the previous Liberal government for allowing. Well, you can question the timeline on that. But the, the clear inference in his comments is that he simply won't allow the transit system in Metro Vancouver to be shut down. So I guess the question will be, we have one week left of the legislative sitting. It's possible that the government could bring the old hammer down with some type of legislation to, to end this job action, prevent it from, from getting worse. Or they pull other maneuvers and the legislature breaks for Christmas. Maybe the premier has to do an emergency recall of the House if, if it carries on. Or who knows? There's lots of different things governments can do. They can appoint mediators. Yeah. They can demand kind of votes on whatever contracts on the table. They can they can do certain things. But we always get to that point of, of immediately thinking, well, you know, the big hammer is legislating an end to transit or any other type of labor disruption if it's really harmful to people. And I imagine, Smitty, and you know the pulse of Vancouver from being on the radio and your columns over there, I imagine people are going to be pretty ticked off when the bus system grinds to a halt for three days. Yeah, and I think Horgan's potentially worried about that, especially if it really inconveniences commuters in the suburbs of Metro Vancouver or, or all basically all around the region because there are so many closely contested ridings in all those seats. I mean, the elections won and lost in this in this Metro Vancouver. And with a minority government, you never know when we can be into another election. So I think Horgan is concerned about political damage from a uh, prolonged strike. And I think that was reflected in his comments that you mentioned that he said, I'm not going to let this drag on like the liberals let it drag on. Now, you got to go way back into the past a little bit. 2001, right, was the last big transit strike. Gordon Campbell was the premier. It went on for three months, and I remember covering it at the time. It was pretty nasty. I think it could be nastier this time because there are more people using the transit system now. The cost of living and driving a car, I think more people are relying on transit. So I think a big strike inconveniences even more people than it did last time and puts even more pressure on Horgan. I guess the the question is, all right, he said, I won't let it drag on as long as the liberals let it drag on which is not not saying all that much, really, because he's saying, basically, I'm not going to let it drag on for three months into through Christmas and into next year. Duh. I don't think anyone would expect him to do that. The question is, how how much does he tolerate with this job action? Like, if they shut the bus system down for three days next week, like they say they're going to do, 
That's going to be a real hassle for people. What does he do about that? Christmas is the real kind of pressure yep. point here, too, right? The closer it gets, people need to be getting from the ferry into the to the airport. There are other pressures on the transit system right now. The SkyTrain workers have yep. also uh, begun moving towards some type of job action. They've done sort of the validating votes that get them to the point where they could decide to do it. So it's not just the bus drivers who who have started this uh, with the first kind of strike, but there are other unions that could also yeah. bring the system to a to a grinding halt. So it'll be an interesting test for the Horgan government because, as you've heard us say in the previous podcast, he's facing pressure. The NDP are facing pressure from a bunch of different labor disputes. And in some cases, they're winning. And we talked in past podcasts about this uh, almost four-week uh, you know, a three to four week shutdown of the Saanich school system because yeah. of a dispute with the QP support workers, which was Smitty finally resolved and classes are back in session here, which is great. The Horgan government held the line on its bargaining mandate, got a deal, kind of brought the union to heal a little bit on that. Uh, looked like that was a good sign for the government. And then you know, one step forward, two steps back, because now you have the labor dispute escalate in the lower mainland. Yeah, I think the screws are really tightened behind the scenes in that Saanich dispute. I, I don't think the government wanted to see that strike go into week four uh, with 8,000 kids out of school. I think that would have been intolerable and the government would have had to step in. And I suspect that was communicated very clearly to the to both sides that, look, you know, you guys better get a deal here or, or we're coming in with the hammer. And it was interesting to hear Rob Fleming, the education minister, stand up in the House as well and thank the national leadership of the CUPE union uh, who, that represents these striking workers, which indicates that maybe the, the, the NDP were maybe calling in some markers with some of the senior union leadership. Look, this is a, this is a real headache for us. We need to put an end to it. So they did see, appear to stand their ground and they got a deal, which is good for those parents in Saanich. But the question is, like you said, there's lots of these other flashpoints. You know, we didn't even talk about the BC Teachers Federation, right? They're without a contract. And who knows where that's going? That doesn't look good either. UNBC so all of a sudden, is, yeah, is UNBC, there's on strike. I mean, there's lot, all, all of a sudden, there's a lot of strikes here. Now, the Liberals um, are saying, well, we want Horgan to do something. We want tougher leadership. We want perhaps some kind of intervention. Typical of the Liberals, though, they don't say exactly what they want the government to do. No. well, They just I'm, want them to do something. I mean, how many briefings did we sit through with the Liberal government on their bargaining mandates, Which one of which was zero? Remember the bargaining <laughs> mandate, which was zero yeah. uh, during tough economic times? So, you know, all governments set bargaining mandates. The Liberal government's mandates were tougher. They did come up with some creative ways to say, you know, if the economy grows and a certain percentage above forecasts, we'll share that money with workers. Yeah. But this is a very modest... You know, in in some ways, um, less generous bargaining mandate than we thought the NDP was going to come up. But it's still 2% a year for three years wage increase. And the NDP are not, you know, pulling uh, some crazy stunt here. Setting a bargaining mandate is what governments do. And it is amazing to watch the Liberals light their hair on fire about this thing while also not saying what they actually think the NDP should well, do to solve it. That yeah, this kind of situation normal with the Liberals on a lot of on a lot of fronts. So I find frustrating. Like you know, it, it reminds me a little bit of um, the ICBC situation, where the Liberals will say, you know, you, you've got to fix ICBC, and then you ask them, well, what would you do? Well, we'll tell you later. You know, and it's kind of similar to this. Like we want you to fix all these labor problems. Well, what exactly do you want? Well, you know, you got to do something. I think what the Liberals just want is to pin the blame, obviously, on the NDP for any inconvenience. So it's kind of it, it's. As is often the case in politics, what they say and what they really want are opposite. So 
Wilkinson saying, we want the government to step in and fix this, whereas I think secretly he's hoping Horgan does not step in and it does not get fixed and it gets worse and that the public blames the NDP for it. That's what the liberals hope. Yeah, it's a tough position for the NDP because they they believe in collective bargaining. They are the yeah. party of unions. I think they allow a lot more room than the liberals might allow on some of these disputes. I mean, three weeks yeah. of a school dispute was extraordinarily long. I could see Horgan allowing, um, you know, initial strike days for bus workers in Metro Vancouver to let let that union blow off the steam, allow its members to go out on a picket line to to exercise their, you know, part in collective bargaining. But stretching it out to multiple weeks, stretching it close to Christmas, it's just the question of the timing of the legislature. You know, if the government has to legislate, they're going to have to bring everybody back here in, a, in an emergency session. And that'll be That'll be a big deal. Because ne- next week's the last week of yeah. the session. So if they if they want to let the union blow off steam with a bit of a strike, a short yeah. one, they're not going to be here anymore. And then, then it'll get a little bit awkward. I think they've – Horgan, though, I think is looking – I don't think he wants to be seen as caving into the unions. And we've seen him be fairly tough like we've seen on the Saanich dispute, right, where they've held the line. Um, they've talked pretty tough against the teachers too. So I think that there's a certain recognition I think in the NDP – that maybe if if they're seen to be tolerating a lot of disruption and strikes or caving in to union demands, that it's politically dangerous for them. I wonder what the NDP convention will be like, which is this ah, coming yeah. weekend in Victoria, where all the union organizers and, and social justice and labor activists will be in a room with their government, yeah. the ones that they have been pushing for for quite a long time, but are now not getting the contracts that they wanted. Yeah. I imagine that's not going to be as celebratory as... Uh, as the first year of the NDP government under John Horgan. We're into the sobering reality conventions now of fiscal prudence, and we don't have enough money to do everything, and I know we promised this, but we can't afford it, and let's be reasonable and rational about what you want. I think a lot of the maybe behind-the-scenes chatter is, look, we're in a minority situation. Power could easily transfer back to the Liberals in in an election that could come sooner than you think. Don't turn your backs on us. Like we need to get reelected here, and if we get into if we get into a majority government situation where Horgan gets an, a full term, another full term in power, then he, you know the the suggestion to the unions might be wait. You know they're, they're better. There's a better settlement coming next time. On another topic, and this one really kind of <laughs> you got to admire the politics of this. It's a very shrewd maneuver by the Horgan government that has announced that a backbench MLA by the name of Bob Deeth from Maple Ridge is the new, quote, federal lead, quote, uh, on the issue of cell phone prices. Now, this has been a little thread in some of the comments from this government over the last year. You'll remember the February throne speech said, hey, cell phone bills are really high. They're hurting the middle class. They're they're uh, harming the affordability of ordinary people who rely on cell phones. Our government is going to do something about this. That was the throne speech. And immediately the question was, wait a second, aren't telecommunications companies, the cell phone companies regulated federally, and they are, what what can the province do about this? And the NDP government said, well, you know, we'll figure that out. Uh, And uh, so basically what has occurred is a very long survey, a public survey on what do you think of your cell phone bills? Well, lo and behold, that came back this week. And guess what? People don't like their cell phone bills. No, I know. I know. How much money did this survey cost? That's shocking. Six percent of people feel like they get value on their (laughs) on their cell phone bill. So it was interesting to hear Bob Deeth come out because he said, "Okay, well, now that we've got this survey, I guess British Columbia can start doing some work on exactly, you know, like what are its regulatory options to to do something on this." And I asked him the question. I said, "Well, 
What have you been doing the last nine months since you announced this in the throne? Have you not checked to see what British Columbia can actually do on this? And he said, no, 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 we haven't done that yet because we wanted to hear from the people first. Well, okay. Uh-huh. But this is a, a – I don't – I guess it depends on whether you, you really – appreciate the craftiness of what the new Democrats are doing here, or if you are actually hoping that it will result in lower cell phone bills. But the politics of this, I guess, on one hand, are brilliant. It's a populist issue. It looks like the government is going up against the big cell phone companies, which is the modern equivalent of big tobacco. You know, those big yeah. companies you get the government's got to rail against. On the other hand, it is very clear, crystal clear, that BC can do nothing about cell phone bills. <clears throat> they can do literally Nothing to lower the price of a cell phone bill. It is all federal jurisdiction. What do you make of this continued? Well, they they can't do anything directly, but they can lobby the federal government to keep their promises. Because remember that Justin Trudeau promised to do something to bring down cell phone bills. In fact, he said he he talked about a twenty five percent reduction mm-hmm. in cell phone bills during the last election. Which again is this another kind of fuzzy political talking point that maybe got him some votes in the election. But now the pressure's on to deliver. Uh, An interesting thing now with the minority government federally is you have Jagmeet Singh, the federal NDP leader, now holding a a very interesting position, potentially holding the balance of power there and having some leverage over Trudeau. And Jagmeet Singh in the federal election promised an even tougher crackdown on cell phone bills. So he said that a federal government should actually bring in a hard cap on the amount that cell phone companies can charge and the data over data charges and that kind of thing that he said would uh, should immediately save Canadians 10 bucks a month on their cell phone bill. Mm-hmm. So Singh was tougher than Trudeau on threat, threatening to go after the big three telecom companies. And now suddenly Singh has some leverage over Trudeau. And he's an NDP leader. Here we have an NDP government that could potentially be telling Singh, look, let's really get something done here. Now, I guess the, we'll see what happens. But you're right. I mean, it is clearly federal jurisdiction. Um, but they're, I think they're on to something because I think the public is kind of sick and tired of getting whacked for cell phones. I mean, when, I, when I've traveled overseas, I've just noticed how much cheaper cell phone oh, yeah. coverage is. I mean... I remember traveling to China years ago and uh, was just stunned at how cheap it was. <laughs> to call, I was calling home every day on the cell phone uh, and it was costing me pennies. There's no question uh, we're getting ripped off in Canada. Oh, yeah. But that is a federal issue for the federal parties who made promises. Yeah. And I don't think British Columbia has much of a role wandering into Ottawa. Bob Deeth, backbench MLA that no one's ever heard of, heading out to uh, Ottawa in the federal government and in that dynamic saying, oh, hey, everybody, uh, Bob Deeth here. just want to remind you about your election promises. I don't even think he's going to get meetings on that subject. Uh, but I just think it's a it's one of those things that governments like to do. They, they'll put into their throne speeches promises to act on issues that are they don't actually they can't actually do anything about. And then it becomes backfilling well, that and making it look like they are doing something. I mean, one of the things that Deeth mentioned is, well, we could we could go the route of consumer protection in British Columbia. And I was talking to experts who say the consumer protection law is if you, if you can find companies price fixing or rigging the market or that type of thing. The only mechanism BC could, 
could maybe implement is some type of transparency rule yeah. on your cell phone bill. If you make the companies give more information about their bills and what they used to be and the historic value and break it down, maybe you shame them through the public outrage into changing their behavior, possibly. But that really is maybe the only thing in BC's jurisdiction that it could do. There might be some opportunity for some sort of transparency rules on cell phone charges so people can understand their cell phone bills and the avoid the sort of bill shock that people get from data overages and stuff like that. I, I've heard calls for more transparency in advertising uh, around cell phone companies as well. But again, that seems to be largely federal jurisdiction. We have seen other provinces sort of wade into this cell phone thing and, and, and take some action. So I guess BC kind of following the trend of other other provinces. I think they do have a little bit of leverage over the federal government. Maybe they that can produce something. But you know, it, it's sort of uh, reminiscent of, do you remember a few years ago, people were mad as hell about their cable TV bills? Right. And there was a big uproar about that. And the government brought in a rule declaring that the T, uh, cable TV providers had to provide what's what's called a skinny basic right. uh, package of, uh, of cable TV. And... Uh, People might remember that and just I, I'm still getting killed on my cable bill. You know what I mean? Like I think for, for people who are paying, that's the worst bill of the month when you got to pay that cable bill. Yeah. The cell phone's right up there too. So it's one of those ones where it's a sore point for consumers. Not surprised to see the government try to take advantage of it politically. But it, re, it reminds me a little bit too of the gas price inquiry because it's the same thing on the gas price. Like we're not going to roll back gas prices. We're not going to regulate gas prices. We're not going to cut gas taxes. But we're gonna we're gonna require transparency. At the same time, we <clears throat> lobby the federal government to do yeah. something about it. So similar on this uh, cell phone. Well, it's a good uh, it's a good comparison because the government brought in its gas legislation this past week, which was as we talked about transparency legislation. Yeah. So basically, it's going to require the companies to hand over their supply data, their pricing data, their margins, and wholesale and retail to the British Columbia Utilities Commission, which right. is independent. And then it will... And then what do they do with it? Well, they have a giant binder in some warehouse room that they're going to add all this data into. And the real question is, okay, so you're tracking this stuff now. What can you do? And again, we very quickly hit the wall of, well, British Columbia can ask for it and track it. They can make it public through reports on what the pricing difference is. But ultimately, that's it. They're, They're kind of mandate ends at forcing the companies to hand over information. There is a possibility, I guess, that they the government could use some type of consumer protection legislation for regional sections of the province that don't have competitive markets. That was briefly mentioned in one of the Utilities Commission reports that they could force the divestiture of certain companies in certain markets. That would be extraordinarily messy. I would imagine the lawyers would be the only ones who benefit from what would be years of legal action and challenges there. But in the meantime, it looks great. It looks like the government's going to war with the oil and gas companies. They're going to war with the cell phone companies. They're going to war with the tobacco companies on their vaping legislation. Yeah, this is your right. government out there smashing heads together, kicking down doors. Will any of it make a difference? Probably not. Maybe Although not. on Probably vaping, not. on vaping, I think it will. We talked about that on last week's podcast, so have a listen to that. But it is great politics um, for the short term. On the other side of great politics is... ICBC. One more thing on the gas price thing, just before we go to ICBC. I think what the government hopes here, Bruce Ralston used that old that old line, sunshine is the best disinfectant on this. I think he called it detergent. I think he got it, <laughs> he got it wrong, but that's, 
I mean, there is. He got his cliches. You can mixed. probably wash your clothes with sunshine, I guess. But I, <laughs> sunshine's I the best disinfectant. I think is probably what he said. But he did. He said detergent. Yeah. But he didn't know what he means. And he's, I guess they're hoping if they can somehow remove the temptation for these oil and gas companies to jack your prices up, knowing that they have to disclose this price setting data, then they just won't do it. Now, if the prices stay low, that's great for the NDP because then they can kind of take credit for it. So they can say, hey, the reason prices have stabilized is because we brought in these rules. So they get repetitive strain injury from patting themselves in the back for doing that. The prop, the risk is if the prices go back up, then what does he do? Yeah. You know, if the if the uh, transparency thing hasn't worked, then there's pressure again to do something. That's so we'll kind of like their the housing year. market strategy as well. Though they have a lot more levers on the housing market, but it's only you know government's patting itself on the back for all of the housing moves they've taken when yeah. it may in fact just be the lag of the federal mortgage stress test rules. Who knows? But as long as the prices go down in any particular subject, government will take credit. They do it quite often on jobs numbers. How many jobs yeah. have been generated this quarter or this year? If they go up, government says, look, our plan's working. If yeah. they go down, they say, well, governments can't Liberals create fault. jobs. That's the <laughs> private sector that creates jobs. So, yeah. so it, it's um, it's politics in action there. ICBC, our yes. perpetual topic of, of the year, um, we also had some activity on that file in this past week. Smitty, you briefed us the previous couple of weeks on the idea of online insurance renewal. So that's well covered off. Go have a listen to those podcasts if you want more on that. We had the Attorney General emerge this week say, you know what? We're going to do it. We are doing this online renewal, not just we're thinking about it, not just, as he said in your columns in the past, it's an idea that maybe doesn't make a lot of financial savings and it's going to be complicated and whatever. We're doing it. We're getting it done before the next election, is what he said. Uh, and so now off off we go with that. ICBC is creating some type of new IT system to handle online renewals, which in the vein of government IT systems of past will probably go way over budget and not work at all, but they're creating it. Yeah. And at some point, you will be able to go online and get your insurance renewed uh, without having to go into the auto plan broker. Now, you're still writing about this. So what do you think the immediate feedback is uh, in, in the world of politics and brokers and, and uh, insurance on David Eby's well, move? When, when you talk to people about ICBC, one of the common complaints I hear from people is, why can't I have products and services that are freely available in other provinces? Like, for example, why can't I renew my insurance online? Like in other provinces, you can just tap your smartphone, you can renew your auto insurance. Why can't I do that here? Or why can't I bundle my auto insurance with my home insurance and save money? Why can't I buy per kilometer insurance so that my insurance cost uh, precisely matches the distance that I drive? This is another product that's offered in other provinces, not offered here. And I think the answer to it is the reason we don't have these products and services is because ICBC doesn't have to offer them. They're a monopoly. So when you don't have competition uh, with other with your competitors offering these these services and you don't, there's no pressure on you to offer them. So I think it's just a, a reflection of how this insurance corporation has failed to modernize over many years and they've got a lot of catching up to do. So it's interesting to hear EB say, now we're going to do the online. Um, I don't think there's going to be a lot of immediate savings there because the brokers are still going to be in the picture here. It's not like they're going to cut the, the middleman out completely mm. and sell insurance to the public directly on an ICBC website, although they could conceivably do that. The brokers are still going to have a cut of the action. 
the and last year was five almost five hundred million dollars in broker commissions. Huge price cost pressure for the government. They would like to reduce that. The way they would reduce it is if you do an online renewal, um, the brokers would still be involved in that online service, but their commission would be less. And that's where they would save. But I can't see how it's going to be an enormous saving. So how does that put out the dumpster fire over there? How do I don't you think get, it does. How do you get your little decal to put on your license plate? They maybe mail it to on? you. Well, then you better not wait till the last minute. Well, to, yeah. Uh, yeah. If, you got, if you're last minute or you're overdue and you need the decal immediately, presumably you'd have to go back into the broker's office. Those decals are high security. You know, when you get them renewed at the at the license, at the uh, insurance place, they have to write down the number and it comes from a special little pouch in a book. So they're going to start hoofing those well, things out in the mail. And I bet you decal, decals become a great scam. Well, this is one of the reasons that EB has been saying, like, this is it's not as easy to do as it's saying. Yeah. Um, because for one of those reasons, you know, that the, the brokers currently play a big role in how this system works. Another thing the brokers do is they co- actually collect uh, fines. So if you have outstanding fines that you haven't paid and you go to renew your auto insurance and you're sitting down at an auto broker and the broker says, oh, you, you uh, before I can sell you the auto insurance, you got to pay all your tickets <laughs> you know? yeah. and you can pay up right now. The brokers kind of do that work for ICBC. So they do a lot of other stuff that people maybe not, are not aware of. And that's why they've they've come become so it's tough to cut them out of it. No, there's 900 locations. They're a powerful yeah. group. Yeah. Um, despite the liberals in one of your columns, Jazz Johal suggesting you should just get rid of that entirely. I think he. Well, was... he didn't say entirely. He said you could cut them out. You could reduce it significantly. Yeah. And there was a big pushback on that from the I BC think, uh, Insurance Brokers I think Association. Got, I think the liberals got pulled back a little bit on that one. They did because I I was told that they were not happy. Yeah. With some of the comments from Jazz Johal to me in a column I wrote about this. So they, you know, they pushed back to the government. I'm sure there was a lot of private griping going on to government about this. So The other development on ICBC in the last week was David Eby also says he's preparing legislation that would ban governments from taking the profits out of ICBC. And we've talked about this Good. in the past too, milking the golden cow. So whenever ICBC is profitable, which it is not now, and who knows if it will ever be again, but when it has been in the past, there's a bunch of excess optional capital money lying around, and the government says, let me get my sticky little fingers on that, and they yank it out of ICBC, and they toss it into the budget, and they use it to fund whatever they want, education, healthcare, whatever. And that has been okay, I guess, for the previous liberal government's budgets. They took about a billion two yeah. out of ICBC yeah. for several years. And then, but it's the equivalent of making, it's like, you know, running a business or running a budget in your household with no fallback money. And then one day when things change and the circumstances change and things get tighter, you have nothing there to fall back on. So ICBC begins to hit trouble in 2017. Its claims costs go up. It's got a, a backlog. Its legal fees are going up and poof, suddenly it's in the red. It's hemorrhaging money and there's no money around because government's taken all their money. And EB saying, look, like we shouldn't be doing this. Okay, that that may be legislation that will pass. It it hits that old spot here at the legislature of governments can do things, but they can't bind future governments. It reminds me of Gordon Campbell's balanced budget legislation. You absolutely have to have balanced budgets until the year that you don't, and you repeal yeah. your you repeal Just the repeal legislation with a, a vote in the house. You say we got to get rid of this law. Boom, done. Off for lunch. Uh, so it's a symbolic maneuver by the New Democrats to say we're going to take our hands off of ICBC. If we put the dumpster fire out, we're not taking the money. They can keep the money. The hope is the rates will go down with that money. 
maybe. I mean, that's the other well, that's the other question, I guess, is if you let ICBC keep all the cash, are they just going to start hiring more executives and doing crazy things, or are they going to bring your rates down? When was the last time you had a rate reduction? Well, if there is a profit at ICBC at some point in the future, it still shows up in the government's books as kind of a deliverable or in the positive column and reduces the government's deficit. Right. So even though they would not be allowed to f- literally take the money out of ICBC and put it into the government's bank accounts, it still shows it would still show up in the black on the government's consolidated books at the end of the year. So there's a bit of there's a bit of I don't know accounting kind of trickery going on, but it's kind of funny like with EB saying, "Well, we're going to bring in this bill to make it illegal to actually take the money out of ICBC." He's basically bringing in a law that used to be on the books in BC because it used to be illegal to do that. And the liberals changed it. When you were just talking about how another government could change it, that's what the liberals did. They changed the law so they could take that money out of ICBC and they took a billion. billion It used to be illegal for ICBC to cross-subsidize its rates from the optional and basic side. They were separate things. And that was changed too. So there's been a lot of changes. It reminds me also of BC Hydro when we talk about governments taking money from crown corporations. They not they not only took it from ICBC but BC Hydro took and there too. They took it so much from BC Hydro that Hydro had to borrow money in certain years to hit the right financial targets, yeah. which would allow it to give government the dividend the government demanded that it wanted. So that accounting system was so screwed up, government would go to, to BC Hydro and say, we want this amount for our budget. And Hydro would say, okay. And they'd push a bunch of costs off to the future and deferral accounts, and they'd make it look like they were more profitable, and they'd borrow some money. And then they'd say, guess what, everybody? It's a great year. We can we can achieve the dividend for government. And then they'd send over a bunch of cash. And I get a shell ho- game. The hope wow. is, you know, that, that government's take their hands off that but it's the liberals didn't do that because necessarily um they wanted to goof around with the crown corporations they did it for the purpose that the new democrats state that they interfere with these things to keep rates low it all starts from election promises to keep rates low that turn into a reality of holy man it's difficult to keep rates low look at all these pressures that these corporations are under and then that turns into we got to get in there and solve these problems which turns into micromanaging the crown corporations and eventually taking the money away from them and doing it yourself and so and you then lo- and then lawsuits from stakeholders who don't want you to change the system that's right like and the you lose lawsuits lawyers. it's a mess but it all stems from that political promise that we are going to keep your rates low even yeah. if your rates should probably increase to keep the crown corporations viable. And then it, and it all flows from that. So it, ICBC will continue to be probably the number one issue here at the legislature on certain days. I'm sure uh, we'll talk about it again. I I'm <laughs> not sure. You might Maybe next year we can. Yeah. Uh, but uh, keep your eyes on our podcast feed. Make sure you subscribe so you get a little notification when we're up with a new ex- episode next week. Uh, read Mike Smith in the province and myself in the sun, and we will be back talking to you next week. See you then.